Welcome to the Open Apple Podcast, where we celebrate the Apple II. Whether you're a longtime user, a nostalgic visitor, or a newcomer to the community, join us as we share news and memories of Steve Wozniak's most famous personal computer. Greetings, Apple II enthusiasts, and welcome to the Open Apple Podcast, the Apple II community's only co-hosted podcast. This is show number 25. That's right, we've made it through a full quarter. There is no quarter here. It's a full quarter. Ouch. And this is for March 2013. Joining me, me being Ken Gagney, is my co-host, Mr. Mike McGinnis. Hi, Mike. Hello, Ken. How are you? Fine. How are you? I'm doing all right. Good to talk to you again. And you as well, sir. Now, you have a weekly podcast with Carrington that we've talked about here. No quarter. What show number are you guys up to? Uh, we just cleared show 20. And by the time you and I record Open Apple again, we'll be well beyond this show. When you hit 25 episodes of that, will you be first quarter? Um, probably. I, I, I think we could maybe go with that. I'm sure, sure Carrington will come up with something more creative. Carrington does do that. He has that talent over every one of us. Well, I imagine if it were just me doing no quarter, nobody would be listening. So <laughs> You could always call the show no audience. Ouch. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But no, no quarter is great. Open Apple is great. And our listeners are great. So thank you for joining us for yet another month of news, reviews, and interviews about the Apple II. Uh, Mike, what has been going on with you since we last spoke? Why, absolutely nothing, Ken. <laughs> Your life is dull and mundane. Well, I just go into the spare room and stare at the wall until it's time to record again. That reminds me of the TV show Small Wonder. Ugh. <laughs> she would just go into her closet every night and stay there. <laughs> How very Stepfordian of her. What an awful show that was. It was memorable. Yeah, for how bad it was. <laughs> well, well, come on. I was, well, yes, it was, but when you're... I think the show is aimed at little kids, and little kids can't tell the difference. It was like the Apple Three of 80s sitcoms. I bet that analogy has never been drawn before. And probably never will again. So the show should be dropped from six inches? It should, yes. <laughs> or, or quite a bit higher. <laughs> oh, my. What about you, Ken? What's new in your life? Also not much. Uh, a little bit of family health issues, but that happens as everybody gets older. Sure. As far as... Uh, as far as offline life goes, not too much. I'm just uh, staying the course, working my new jobs at the various colleges in Boston. Got some freelance gigs. I just submitted a story, a feature story to PC World, which I haven't seen published yet. But seeing as how they assigned it to me, as opposed to me pitching it to them, I think it's safe to say that it won't be killed, but prior to publication. And then later this month is PAX East, which I'll be attending with Wayne Arthurton, Andy Malloy, and Paul Hagstrom, as well as my friend TJ. That sounds like a great time, and if I... If I'm ever out in your neck of the woods uh, again during that time of year, I'll probably be tagging along with you. Well, that would be fun. We can always use more Apple II users. In fact, I'm doing my best to recruit Apple II users at PAX East. Ask me how. How, Ken? Well, there is a room at PAX East entirely dedicated to retro video game consoles and machines. This is right next door to the Retro Coin-Op Room, sponsored by the American Classic Arcade Museum at Fun Spot in Laconia, New Hampshire. The console room has ColecoVision, Atari 2600, TRS-80, stuff like that. Last year, I was walking through the halls with Andy and Wayne, and I said, I wonder what it would take to get an Apple II in that room. Some random person standing right next to me pulls out his card and says, we're in charge of that. Drop us a line. So I took his card, and I eventually emailed him. I said, hey, I can coordinate assembly an Apple IIe with monitor, keyboard, mouse, and joystick, and we can donate to your room. What do you say? 
And he said, great. Turns out that this organization that sponsors that room actually has a video game museum in Las Vegas. They have an extensive collection of their own. They will add this Apple IIe to it and then take it on tour with them to various conventions around the country so that other people can play it too. Well, that was easy. Yeah, getting all the hardware and software together is proving a little bit of a challenge, but I'm crowdsourcing it so that not any one person has to collect everything. I know my friend Paul, who lives in Boston, just went down to Pennsylvania a couple weeks ago to haul in a trove of Apple II stuff that was going to be thrown away. So I think he might be able to piece together some stuff for that donation. And then since I'm the one coordinating it, I'll take all the credit. Well, you wouldn't have it any other way. That's right. I'm glad to have the Apple IIe at PAX East. And uh, I, I briefly spoken with my friends last year about whether or not like we could even get a vendor booth and sell Apple II stuff. Not that there would be a lot of Apple II users there interested in buying things, but just to have an audience of 70,000 people would be so cool. Logistically, it's just not feasible. So I'm glad we found this much more reasonable alternative. Sounds like it's working out nicely. Yeah, so that's my homework assignment for PAX. Also, uh, this is not confirmed yet, but it seems that I'm actually going to be moderating a panel at PAX. Well, be sure to videotape that and put it online. That's one reason Jason Scott doesn't go to PAX anymore, is because their events aren't preserved. And I can see how that would irk a historian such as himself. I don't know if I'll be able to coordinate an alternative. I currently don't have any video recording equipment that lasts longer than 10 minutes, but I'll see what I can do. This is Dennis Doms of the old Open Apple, and you're listening to Open Apple. So this month we have with us the Data Jerk, um, also known as Egan Ford. Hello, Egan. How are you? Good, Mike. How are you? I'm doing all right. How did you get involved with the Apple II? What were your first experiences? Whatever you want to share. My, my first experience, probably the same as, as many others, would be school. I started high school in my sophomore year. That's when high school starts here in in the uh, in Utah, and uh, the Apple II Plus was what was in the computer lab back then. That more or less became my my initial experience with it. Do you remember any particular programs or uh, games or anything that that you played way back then? You know, we had like a two year program, so you'd do a, a year of data processing, uh, which was mind numbingly boring, and then and then you do a year of of programming, which was much much more interesting. And I, I quickly dropped out of the data processing and went straight into the programming my, my sophomore year. But, yeah, we, we used, I don't even remember the name of the word processor used back then. It wasn't, it wasn't I, I don't even remember the name of it. It, it, was, it was only 40 columns as well. It wasn't a, a nice word processing experience. And, and we did mess around with VisiCalc a bit. But it, it was programming that was really what I wanted to do. And that, that was just all basic. In terms of games... You know, Load Runner has always been one of my favorites, and uh, but the the Infocom games, those those were the games that I think I spent the most time with. Just this idea that you could type to the computer and it could understand you was uh, to me much more a phenomenal experience than than graphics and sound, which is something that I could relate to and understand how someone could do that. But this this concept of artificial intelligence really uh, really enticed me. And uh, so I, I spent a lot of time on playing games like Zork and, and uh, Hitchhiker's Guide. But, but that pales in comparison to the amount of time I spent programming. Programming was what my passion really was, and that's what I wanted to do on the Apple II. Well, in fact, you've continued to program even even into today with uh, some, some projects. Do you, do you want to talk about those? 
Uh, yeah, so, you know, in the 80s, I, you know, I only used the Apple II for a couple of years. You know, AP Computer Science, my junior year, that was really focused on the, the Alpha Micro, and which was kind of a um, shared system, multi-user system. And, and that actually uh, started my career based on programming that. And, you know, at, at the same time, I was learning Unix and C, and I was always on focusing moving forward. And didn't really spend much time, more than a, uh, a year or two, uh, on the Apple II, and kind of kind of just forgot about it moving forward. And it, it wasn't until 2008 when I got a got my second Mac. My first was the Mac 512 that I had in the in the mid 80s, and my second Mac was the uh, the, the the 2008 unibody Mac, and it kind of got me thinking about the Apple II again and my my earlier Apple experiences, and so I, I started getting back into the retro scene and and uh, uh, programming again. So, so yeah, I I, uh, I started with uh, I, I'd kind of moved on basic, and so I started with you know could I program in C on the Apple II, which is something I wanted to do in the '80s, and it was significantly more difficult. Even though I acquired uh, Aztec C, it was like six floppy disks. It was not a pleasant programming. Uh, environment, uh, but there's cross compilers now, and so I was able to use those. And I started uh, programming again. And um, my, I tend to spend most of my time writing benchmarks because I'm trying to understand the performance and the characteristics of of the systems. And and so that's where I kind of got started doing that. And then I started learning that uh, with all these different retro systems that I was benchmarking and, and testing that. You can't you can't do it in C because the uh, the compilers are vary so widely even on the same platform that you get you get high variability in the performance and and the results and so that kind of led me to start thinking about assembly language and so I actually started doing the sixty five hundred two assembly language I think only about two years ago and so I, I wrote a game for the Apple One called Codebreaker and it was written in C but I needed to do assembly language to do the timer. I needed a way to measure how much time it took for uh, keystrokes to put in, be put in, so I could use that as a, a random number seed, so that I had a way to have the game be be randomized. And so that was kind of the first. That was my first Apple One application, and, and probably my first Apple application that I would consider a whole application. The, Programming exercises in school, I, I wouldn't really count as as applications. So yes, there's there's Apple One development taking place in 2011, and I <laughs> I updated it in 2012 because uh, someone reported a bug. So we have Apple One users actually using it. So that's kind of kind of how I got started. Have some of these programs been written in response to like a retro challenge? No, no. I I, I did the Apple One game because I. I was as I was getting back into retro computing, or, or I guess starting with retro computing, I started you know kind of looking at the history. Like like I said, I spent so much time looking forward. I didn't really look at what I had in the '80s and didn't really focus on on what was happening at that time. I was just so interested in moving forward with Unix and C and networking and things like that that I, I kind of missed out on a lot of stuff. And so as I started doing research and learned about the Apple One and stuff like that, I just kind of wanted to to do something for it, and I. I'm not even sure I knew about the retro challenge uh, at the time. Now, the the second 
project I did was my um, code to tape utility, which allows me to create uh, create data. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, create create cassette tapes for um, for the Apple II. Uh, I got a I got my first Apple II E in 2011, so that's it's been a long time. My Apple II Plus in the 80s was a clone. I'd never really owned a, a real uh, Apple IIe. I bought one in in the in the uh, summer of 2011, and as I was, you know, cleaning it, and it's a beautiful machine. It's it's the original one that was the painted resin, so it'll it'll never turn dark. It's a very very nice machine. It, it was the original owner, and uh, I noticed the cassette ports on there, so I got I got kind of intrigued about what I could um, what I could do with them. Uh, with the Apple One emulators, even though they emulate cassette, I could cut and paste code into the emulator, so I didn't have to wor- worry too much about uh, learning how the cassette interface worked. So it got me curious about the cassette interface, and that kind of led to my second program, and that was uh, an easy way to transfer data from my computer where I was doing development and uh, directly into the Apple IIe and so I, I submitted that as a retro challenge, the retro winter warm-up for 2011. I was going to blog about uh, the experience of doing that, um, but I, I didn't. Instead, what I did is I got sucked into feature creep and kept adding capabilities uh, into this code uh, for my own purpose. Uh, I found that putting uh, an, uh, writing some code and then putting it on my iPhone and then transferring it through the cassette interface was taking too long. It'd take like two, three minutes to transfer a large program into memory. So I started focusing on um, how do I go from, it's like 1,333 bits per second, which is default. I got that up to 8,000 bits per second, and then I added compression so that I could then download large programs in you know, 20 seconds. Would be a would be an average time for a large program, and then once I got that done, I launched the uh, Apple Game Server, which was kind of a, a clone of the the Apple Game Server that you get from SourceForge that uses um, the serial port. I did this with the audio port, and then I posted that online, and then you can pick a game and stream it directly to memory. And then after that, I got a little bit more ambitious and thought, well, how about you know downloading software directly to, to floppy disk. And so I added that and got permission to use the uh, virtualapple.org archives. And uh, Bill sent me this nice spreadsheet with uh, everything that I needed. And then I, I parsed that, wrote a front end to it. And now I've got like 1,500 disks on that site. And you can plug your Apple IIe directly into your computer or your uh, mobile phone and download directly from the internet, directly or download directly from the internet to your floppy uh, any of those 1,500 titles. And, that, and the downloads take about uh, three minutes on average. So this is a very different service from ADT Pro, which requires the local computer have the disk image to send to the Apple II. Yeah, yeah. This would uh, – and, and, and I get, I don't know, maybe five or – eight hits a day. It's not a wildly popular site. I'm sure it's mostly from search engines that are looking for content. But uh, yeah, the, it, it's, I've got some feedback from people and it's in some ways it's easier than ADT, ADT Pro because you don't have to have a computer and a serial, super serial or whatever. Uh, and, and you can, although you can do ADT Pro with the audio cables, uh, they don't have the high 
bit rate that I developed for the compression uh, at this point. And so it can take 12 minutes or 12 to 16 minutes or something like that to transfer over uh, the audio. And um, I'm doing it about three minutes. So something that's handy about having this, both the game server and the disk server, is uh, if you buy an Apple product out of the paper, or if uh, you see one at a, uh, uh, I don't know, a Goodwill or something, and you can plug it in and test it, and you have your cell phone with you, you can stream code directly into memory to test it like a game or something. And if it has a floppy on it, you could put a blank floppy in there and stream ProDOS or DOS and boot it up and do some basic diagnostics on the system uh, without having to drag your computer around in a serial cable and all that other stuff. So it's much more than just a game server. Yes. Yeah, the, the game server's got, I don't know, like 200 games or something on there. And the, the disk server, it's, it's mostly games, but I put ProDOS and ADT Pro and, and uh, some other disks on there. If you go to the website, you can see the list of all the disks that I put on there. And I might add more in the future, but it was mostly for fun, kind of as an experiment, my first entry into a uh, retro challenge. So if I may ask, given the this impressive technological accomplishment, when we invited you onto the show, you seemed rather surprised that we'd want to talk to you. But why wouldn't we want to talk to you? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, your other guests that you've had on the show have had a rich, continuous or contiguous history of Apple II innovation and, and participation in the community and so on. And uh, I've got this gap from 1985 to about 2009, and I didn't really start contributing to the community until about about 2011. So. We had uh, David Finnegan on, if you recall, and he didn't get into the Apple II until 2005, and before that he, I don't think, ever seen or touched one. So Yeah, but, the, but the, he's, he's different. I'm, I'm in my mid-40s, and I think he's the same age as my kid, so... <laughs> um, so he has a good excuse, but... Uh, <laughs> And and his contributions to the community have been uh, have been phenomenal. I've I've got his book sitting over here on my bookshelf right now. Uh, I read it cover to cover when it came out, and uh, yeah, I thought, man, this is great. Now 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 I know how to use my Apple too. Good book. Well, I, I certainly wouldn't say that your your game server and your disk server are any small feat. No, but time wise, it, it was it was a holiday project, right? I mean, I I, I don't have the. Uh, I don't have the, the, the time to do you know, some of the more ambitious projects that I would like to, and projects I've got going on right now that um, I'm far from close to completing. Well, I'm still, I'm still happy that we, we decided to have you on. So oh. I don't think any of us have the time for the projects that we envision. Yeah, that's true. And, and, so, and, then, and then you start working on these projects, and there's project creep. You, you keep thinking of, well, I could do this, I could do this, I could do this, and then you have to refactor and redesign. And uh, if you just don't start doing it, it'll it'll never get done. So my my ever my Evernote, my list of all my projects and ideas and so on. It's just it just grows, it just grows. <laughs> Maybe you should start outsourcing. Post that online somewhere. Let people grab ideas. That's actually not a bad idea. If there was a uh, somebody out there say wanted to learn assembly language and needed a project to get started with, that you know that would be a good a good avenue to pursue. Mike. <laughs> <laughs> so so ken i i, I was following you uh mm. on i don't know if it was on twitter or on google plus but you, you said you got a new job who, um, who me yeah you what's your new what's your new job what do you do <laughs> <laughs> uh 
I, let's see, my old job for six years, I was an editor at Computer World Magazine, the same company that publishes Macworld and PC World. Yeah, I knew that. Uh, my new job is as a web producer at MIT Medical, which is an on-campus healthcare facility that employs doctors and nurses to do everything from mental health counseling to outpatient surgery, anything that doesn't require an overnight stay. So what's a web producer? He produces webs, kind of like Peter Parker. Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah. But uh, seriously, what's, I, mean, I, I, I can understand a web author, web designer, but what's a web producer? I'm still trying to get the hang of that. I think it's basically a webmaster who doesn't program. So, so you're kind of like the, like the web czar. Yes. I am running our internet and outward-facing website. Uh, one is in Drupal, the other is in Dreamweaver, and is being transitioned to Drupal. So, so do you focus on uh, just the content, or is uh, you know content, performance, delivery, security, all that stuff in your scope as well? Definitely not security. We have an information uh, information services team or information technology team that takes care of that for us. I am doing um, the content, the website configuration. I do some content generation by writing stories. I'll eventually be in charge of the social media as well. Uh, because they have a minimal Twitter presence and no Facebook presence. And they feel the need to be on both of those places to reach their clientele, which is anything from a 17-year-old genius to a 90-year-old retiree. Because our audience is all of MIT's students, employees, and employees' families. Now, you're uh, also teaching as well, right? That's correct. I have a adjunct faculty position at a college in Boston where I am teaching an undergraduate course in electronic publishing. That sounds great. Yeah, it's a very diverse and eclectic portfolio. I am also I'm teaching a one-day workshop at Harvard this coming week about WordPress. I'm doing some freelance writing for PC World and Computer World. Just submitted my first pieces to each last week. I recently started making some money off some YouTube videos, which shocked the hell out of me. Wait, wait, wait. Now, how, how does that work? Uh, when you upload a video, you allow Google and or YouTube, whichever, to show ads before the video. And anytime somebody clicks on one of those ads, you get a piece of the action. Interesting. Nice. Yeah, the payout is about $5 for every 1,000 views. Doesn't doesn't matter. It's a good resume item. Well, it is, but it's also very hit or miss. I mean, I've uploaded like a dozen videos in the last two months. One of them got a million views. Most of the others got about 500 views. You need more cats in your videos. I've thought of that, yes. I need a, pic I need a video of a cat shredding my master's degree. Because you know which one is really worth more money in the end. The cat? Yes. I, I, uh, I travel a lot, and one of these, and I haven't been to Boston in, or that area in, uh, oh, it's been a couple of years since I've been up there. Maybe, maybe I think it was there last year, but um, yeah, I, uh, I've been thinking that if I ever get up there, uh, I need to track you down. <laughs> and uh, have you have, have you uh, have you helped me with my uh, with my WordPress blog? Happy to do so. Uh, I'm going to be. Um, that's why I I, th I put a note on your list about the bifurcation of the blogs. There's a reason for that. Uh, the Jerkworks is probably going to go away. It's it's too eclectic, and that's not. It's better to have multiple blogs, each with a, a specific focus, if you want to drive um, people to your blog and, uh, jerks, jerkworks was originally created as a place for me to dump things for my friends. 
uh, you know, tips and tricks and things that uh, restaurants, th- th- things that my friends and I had in common because we used to use a mailing, uh, internal mailing list instead. But then I just started putting all my retro stuff uh, on there, and, and it's kind of overwhelmed. It's kind of the, the, the most common content, and it's pretty much all I'm interested in blogging about right now anyway. So I, I registered a new domain. And I've got to stand up my blog. I got to move all my stuff over there, and then and then all my uh, all my new articles and everything that I'm researching right now. And I've, I've got about twenty different things I'm researching. Will eventually get posted to that new do- that new domain. So you want to be more like me, where I have a dozen blogs and not enough time to write on any of them. Yeah, but at least it's organized. <laughs> that is one strength I will admit to. I am organized. Yeah, it, it'll be organized, and I think you get uh, it, it's better for demographic and and you know driving content and so because what do I want to say? Hey, retro community, come check out my eclectic blog, and somewhere there'll be some retro stuff in there, and a bunch of other stuff you probably don't care about. So uh, that, that that's the rationale with looking at um, separating those. So um, yeah, the the geniuses over at RCR said, man, someone should register retro compute. So I did. Oh, good idea. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I'm surprised. I was really surprised. So I, I, they, I, they, I think they said that like in January. So I, I just went out and registered retrocompute.org. So that'll, that'll be my new, uh, my, new, my new blog if I can uh, get around to standing it up. I was, it, was, it was supposed to be my Christmas project, but you know, my kid comes to visit and you just, you just don't find the time. Right. Uh, now, one of the things that you touched on a little bit earlier um, was your benchmarking and 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 how you were interested in benchmarking these retro machines you had an interesting uh couple of articles on the jerkworks which is your blog about the pi day rematch did you want to talk about that a little bit yeah so I, I don't know what my issue or obsession with benchmarking i know where it originates from my most of my prof, my recent professional career has been in high performance computing and um, I've spent a significant amount of time uh, designing and deploying and benchmarking and tuning some of the, the fastest systems in the world. And um, I've written, you know, documents on how to tune using benchmarks and statistics and, and so on for these, you know, very large systems so that they, they perform optimally. So I, I think that just kind of put the bug in me and, and by running benchmarks and micro benchmarks as well as application benchmarks, you start to understand what the capabilities of the, the machine is. So that, that initial article I wrote, my, my other retro hobby is, is, is vintage calculators. I, I grew up with HPRPN calculators and always used them. And I kind of got into that uh, about four or five years ago when I found out that you know, HP really wasn't making quality calculators anymore, and so I started looking at, well, I need to start collecting some of these old ones because I, I can't really live without them. And I stumbled across that article that someone wrote that the uh, HP 41, um, they, they were kind of poking fun at the Apple II, saying it took over 40 hours to, to calculate pi to a thousand digits, and, and uh, I think the calculator did it in like eight hours or something like that. And, and that just didn't, I understood the Apple II, and I understood the calculator, I understood their, their architectures, and it didn't make sense to me why that would be the case. So I decided to explore and figure out were they using the same algorithm, um, you know, what was the code written in, how was it written, how was it implemented. And so that's what that article is, is kind of an exploration of that. And, and we find out at the end that have you taken assembly language version of the Apple II? And this is a just a strange coincidence, but the uh, 
the Apple II version I found, I didn't write my own at the time, I found somebody else's, it computed pi to a thousand digits in machine code in three minutes and 14 seconds, which is uh, quite a bit faster, but also the coincidence that it did it in three minutes and 14 seconds, you know, 3.14. And, uh, yeah, so that was, I didn't even notice that because I just measured it in seconds and someone said, well, that's odd. It took three minutes and 14 seconds. So, uh, that, that was, uh, I think his name's Glenn. I, I apologize. I don't know his name. Uh, it's the code that actually ships with the Merlin eight, the Merlin eight, yeah, Braden. yeah, ships with the Merlin eight, um, assembler. And uh, since then I've written my own, my version takes a minute and 53 seconds. And, um, so yeah, it, it, I, I, I've always been curious about this, and and now I've I've kind of taken it to the the I'm, I'm exploring all the different microprocessors and, and their performance. That's the current project I'm working on, and I don't I wanted it I wanted I thought this was gonna be like a couple weekend project, and it's been almost a year now. I think I started last summer. I've learned. Uh, uh, I've done the 8008 and the 8080 and the Z80 and the 6800 and 6502 and 6809 and the 8088 so far. And I'm starting to work on the TMS 9900, the 68008, and the 65816. The, these machines are either 8-bit or what I'm calling Super 8s, the, the machines that were like 16 or 32-bit, but they had 8-bit buses and were used in, in uh, uh, consumer uh, devices and and it's actually your guys's fault that I started doing this because you mentioned on one of your podcasts that that there was an article that the 8088 was faster than the 6502 because of my background in benchmarking the the first thing you ask is well faster at what and I went and read the article and the guy kind of gave a synthetic argument which I, I've seen a lot in my career and uh, that that's how people sell stuff and. Uh, and he didn't even run a real benchmark. He did a synthetic argument. So that got me thinking. And, and so I, uh, I, I, I learned 6502 and wrote a benchmark and learned 8088 and wrote a benchmark. And uh, 6502 was seven and a half times faster. And uh, so I, I couldn't understand why someone would make a blanket statement that the 8088 was quicker. And, and his arguments was based on the memory performance and not really taking, I think, accurate account into how the 8088 can do uh, execution and fetch overlap. And although the 6502 can do it as well, uh, the 6502 has a four byte uh, prefetch queue. And that really does uh, help with the performance. And so I did an apples to apples performance using his exact, you know, he said to do a, a, a roll. And so I did a series of rolls. I did 418 rolls and found just, just with that benchmark using 8-bit routines, um, or I get 8-bit instructions, I should say, the one megahertz 6502 was twice as fast as the 4.77 megahertz 8088. And if I use the 16-bit calls, even though it's an 8-bit bus, if you use a 16-bit call, uh, you're, you're only, f you're, you're fetching half as many of, half as many instructions to get the same amount of work done. And that was, that was about 2.6 times faster. So even using his, actually doing real code around his synthetic argument was, uh, uh, it was inaccurate. And it, I'm not trying to take anything away from this 8088. Uh, this is just ca comparing processor performance. It's, you know, People buy systems; they don't buy processors. And um, I would never pick an IBM. Well, I, I wouldn't pick a, like a, it was like the fifty-one fifty, I think, at the time, the the, the very first uh, uh, eighty-eighty-eight based PCs. I, I wouldn't pick that over a 
uh, and Apple II. The Apple II had so many other uh, redeeming features in, ter- in terms of software and, and games and capability and, and, and the community uh, that was available even back then was, uh, was enough to make the, uh, uh, the Apple II, in my mind, still a, a superior system. So Egan and I actually exchanged our first communications over uh, at his blog at thejerkworks.com, uh, and we were talking about trying to get the the 2GS emulator running on an iPad. Yeah, of, of all my uh, of all my community contributions, that's the one that receives the most hits. Is how to run how to run Apple II and uh, Apple II and Apple IIGS code on the iPad using the Active GS emulator that's available for the iPad. So Egan, with all your contributions to the community, your appearance on this podcast, your blogging, your research, your programming, what makes you such a data jerk? (laughs) (laughs) Data jerk was the root password for the first Unix machine I administered. And this would be probably around 1990. And I would like to think that my manager who picked that password was thinking of me when he picked it. That's only half the story. Around 1991, I moved from one part of the city to another. I moved exchanges, so I had to get a new phone number. And something that my friends and I always did was we would always ask for phone numbers that didn't have zeros and ones in them so that we could write programs and figure out what our phone number would say. And so I wrote my program. And then we had some rules like you could have trailing characters and stuff, because even if you dial the trailing characters, you can still dial the phone number. So you're looking at words or combination of words that match that first seven and then any trailing characters. And so I ran that, and Data Jerk came up as one of the hits. And, and the odds to me are they're, they're calculable, but, but uh, very, very high. I should calculate the odds sometime. And uh, I just thought, wow, what, what a coincidence. And so from that day forward, I, 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 uh, I picked that as a handle because just because of the the magnitude of, or the, 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 just because the odds were so great that something like that would, would ever take place. And anybody who knows me for a long enough period of time would more or less agree with it. My, my friends all, they all kind of chuckle, <laughs> but you could see that, that look and that, that, that acknowledgement in their faces that, yeah. So is this a public persona of yours? Cause I remember maybe it was when you first arrived on the scene, but we would see the data jerk name. We would see the Egan Ford name and it took us a while to piece it together that these weren't two different people. It's not like I'm. I need like a secret identity so I can go around and do uh, illegal activities or anything. It's it's just, you know. But back in the day, right? And in '91, people still used handles on um, AIM. My BBS days were 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 long gone in in the '90s. Uh, UUCP and and Usenet and the internet. I mean that that was the future. And 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 you used email addresses and and, and your name there. But uh, so I think it's just kind of a. Uh, it just kind of comes from the BBS days, right? To, to, to kind of have this, just a handle. And so it just came from that. So, and, and I've just, I've retained it and no one else is going to use it. I mean, it's on Twitter. It's uh, so, you know, it's not, it's not going to be like a contentious handle. Well, of all the jerks in the Apple II community, you're one that we're glad to have. Get what's new and exciting in retro computing with two news. So we'll kick off this new section with a couple of items from uh, Bill Budge, who everybody knows as a an Apple II programmer from back in the day. He was with uh, Electronic Arts um, and probably is most famous there for Pinball Construction Set. And in fact, he has released the source code for the original P2 
PCS game. Uh, there was an item on Hacker News over at YCombinator.com uh, where that was posted, and he did... Uh, at first, I wasn't sure whether... You know, I mean, you see something on Y Combinator, you don't know whether that's actually him that posted it or somebody else, but he did verify through his Twitter account that, yes, he did post it, and he will be, I guess, updating the source code with a commented version. Uh, you can find that over at GitHub. We'll have a, a link in the show notes. Uh, what I found interesting was the fact that the code was developed on an Atari 800 and or, or was developed on the Apple II, but it was f- it was compiled for the Atari 800. And I guess I guess that was a common practice back in those days because as long as it had a 6502, um, you really didn't have to do that much translation between the platforms. So he was a traitor even back then. <laughs> yeah, Bill's also scheduled to give uh, what they call a classic postmortem on the editor portion of PCS at uh, GDC 2013 in March. So that, I think, will be very interesting. Those are really cool. I've seen some postmortem videos posted online. Sometimes it's a recent work, like the guys who just did the latest Gears of War or something might come out and say, well, here's what went well and here's what could have been done better. And then, yeah, people come up and talk about stuff like Loadrunner or Choplifter and say, here's what we did 30 years ago and here's how we did it. And, you know, it's never too late to reveal your trade secrets, in my opinion. Well, I think that PCS, the, the user editor portion of that software was one of the first ways that – it was one of the, one of the first platforms – that that allowed users to to create their own content for a game. That's probably sort of a, a landmark um, in the the user generated content area, I guess, if you want to call it that, and probably why it was so significant. And why he's talking about that specific part of PCS. I don't think I ever actually played Pinball Construction Set. I played the game. I, I didn't didn't do a lot of my own editing. Uh, I think it came with, if I recall, if I recall, it came with a few default boards, and I just played those. Egan, did you ever play PCS? No, I, I think I've seen it. I think I saw others. Okay, but never, never myself. All right. Uh, next up, so are, are either of you familiar? I assume you're familiar with the the Voyager and the Voyager Two spacecraft that were launched from Earth in 1977. Uh, the one manned by Captain Janeway. Uh, not that one. Oh. These were deep space probes that NASA launched in 1977, and as and their their mission was to go out and and find new life <laughs> and new um, civilizations and new civilizations, yes, and and eventually report back to Earth uh, as Viger as Viger or whatever they <laughs> called it. Um, and on these spacecraft, uh, they included what was called the Golden Record, which was a an, an LP of multimedia from Earth, from various cultures and, and musical influences collected from around Earth in, in the 1970s and what they thought might be a good way to introduce humanity to whatever higher intelligence it discovered out there. Um, and the lead track on this golden record uh, was actually, it was produced, it was recorded by Laurie Spiegel, who was a, an electronic music pioneer back in the 70s, and Pitchfork, uh, the online music magazine, had an article um, profiling her in, back in December. And it's interesting, if you look through the pictures, you can see pretty clearly that she's got an Apple II in her lab there. And in fact, she talks about in there using the Apple II with various MIDI hardware. So the piece that Laurie recorded was called uh, Kepler's 
Harmony of the Worlds, um, which was composed by a mathematician named Johannes Kepler. Her recording brought his piece into the modern age with the electronic version of it. Um, I, I've listened to this piece, and it's certainly not a song um, that you would <laughs> break out at, at the party, uh, at, 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 the, at your party or anything like that. And we'll, here's a brief sample of it, and you'll hear why. So I was doing some more, some Googling on, on Lori Spiegel, and it turns out that not only was she given an early Apple II prototype by Jeff Raskin himself, but she still has it sitting on a shelf in her office. So I thought that was very cool. Most of her work these days is pretty hard to find. They did re-release one of her albums called The Expanding Universe. I don't think there are any Apple II pieces on that one. So Lori also recorded a piece called A Harmonic Algorithm. Um, this was in 1981, and this was done with an Apple II uh, using the Mountain Hardware boards. And you can find a sample of that on her webpage. Actually, it's the whole track, or you can listen to a short sample here. So when you guys sent me the link, I went through and listened to some of the music. And, yeah, some of that's kind of, uh, in a way out there. But uh, I really like the patchwork. She was definitely um, an innovator. And, and uh, I would say some of her work is groundbreaking as far as um, just electronic music goes. But, it's not, again, it's, it's not stuff that you're just going to jam out to and, and have a good time with. Um, well, I guess maybe if, if you're into that sort of thing, you would. It sounds like something 8-Bit Weapon might appreciate. Maybe so, yeah. Patchwork reminded me of that chiptune-style music. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she did work... Uh, some of the hardware that she worked with, with that was in the Apple II was the Alpha Centauri, um, the Mountain Hardware boards, and I know that she did some stuff with the Mockingboard later on. It looks like she only did stuff with the Apple II for a couple of years, which makes sense. You know, newer hardware comes out, and that's what you want to play on. Her page is organized sort of weirdly. You have to go over to the page of all of her compositions that are listed to see what she listed on the Apple II. Then you have to go back over to the samples page and find that title because the samples page doesn't tell you that this title was produced with this hardware. Uh, the track was released on an album called Obsolete Systems, uh, which was released by the Electronic Music Foundation in 2001. I don't think that that's available anymore, though. Uh, like most of her music, it's pretty hard to come by these days. Um, but I just thought that it was, it was really neat that, that she was, was a great, obviously she was such a great pioneer of early electronic music and synthesizer hardware and stuff like that. But she, uh, she's actually a programmer and a coder first, uh, first and foremost. Uh, she was, um, did a lot of development in Fortran and some, and early, uh, assembly language on the Apple II. And, and if you read these interviews online with her, she's happy to talk about that stuff. And in fact, she, she was so into the programming and coding that she oversaw a project on the Macintosh, um, called. Do, do you know if her music is in the public domain? Uh, can we just use it or is it copyrighted? Do you have to buy it? Uh, well, all of her music, I think, is, is copyrighted, um, which is disappointing because most of it's not, 
legally available anymore unless you find it happen to find it as a used CD or an LP somewhere. She did oversee a project on the Macintosh uh, using MIDI called Music Mouse, uh, an intelligent instrument, and you can download a demo version of that. Uh, I don't think it runs on modern Macs. Uh, it hasn't been updated since 1997, but it looks like a very intricate package if you're into composing MIDI pieces on your Mac. Nifty. Yeah. So it sounds like she's had a long and storied career. She is. Sounds like somebody we need to get on the show. Oh, not a bad idea. Talk about her music. It looks like she's willing to do interviews and things. Get them while they're alive. Uh, <laughs> wow, okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so that brings us to the end of Lori Spiegel. All right. Figur- figuratively speaking. <laughs> <laughs> Well, one thing that is not at its end, but in fact is at its very beginning, is the Southeast Vintage Computer Festival 1.0. It is being held April 20th to the 21st outside Atlanta, Georgia. It was originally scheduled for February, and they postponed it. Uh, I I forget why. I think they just needed some more time to put together this inaugural event. Is this the show that's being put on by uh, our RCR compadre David Grealish? Yeah, he is. It is his brainchild. I believe he has some uh, co-hosts or co-organizers. That's one of the reasons that they postponed the event was he found it was too much to put on by himself for eight, for February. So it gave him some time to get some help. Okay. It, it, it's looking like it's going to be a good event. It's actually been getting some press. One of our listeners, Olivier Gunnar, who we've mentioned on the show before, sent us a link to a story written by one of my former Network World colleagues, Julie Bort, about how this event is getting its own pop-up museum. On one hand, I'm pleased to see the event getting this publicity. On the other hand, I'm somewhat confused because it sounds like what they're doing is they're going to have an exhibit hall of old computers, which is a staple of every VCF. So I'm not sure why this is different. Isn't this something that we have at Kansas Fest every year as well? We call it the exhibitor hall, I think, but it's pretty much the same concept, I I would think. Right. We just started that a year or two ago. And VCF uh, Northeast, or VCF East, rather, which is held in Wall Township, New Jersey, is held at the InfoAge Museum, which is a year-round museum. So I, th- I think changing the name from Exhibit Hall to Pop-Up Museum has somehow garnered it some interest that it might not otherwise have. Or it could be playing off uh, David's former petition to Apple to have an actual visitor center that reflects the, on the history of the machine. So maybe these two things are playing off each other. Either way, uh, sounds like it's going to be a great event. They held a Kickstarter to raise $800, and they doubled that to 1600 So they should have everything they need to put on a good show. Nicely done. Now, are you are you planning to attend this, Ken? Or, or, or are you, Egan? I am not, because I find VCF to be not Apple-centric enough for my taste. It is as Apple-centric as it needs to be for a show of such a general nature, but I don't have general interest in retro computing. So I will not be going. I also just started a new job and I haven't accrued much vacation time yet. So I don't want to be jetting off to an event unless it really, really piques my interest. So I will not be going. What about you, Egan? Do you attend VCF either East, West, Northeast, Southwest, anywhere? I went to my first VCF East and VCF last year. I think it's New Jersey. It's only because I was in the area. I uh, I was working in New York that entire week, and then I had to be in uh, the UK the following week. It didn't make sense to fly all the way home for the weekend, turn around and fly to the UK. So I I stayed in the area and was able to um, able to go and spend a day down there at the VCF East. I don't have any plans to go to the VCF Southwest, but if for some reason I was working in the area, 
I could potentially extend my stay and, and go visit, but I don't see that happening. What was your take on VCF East? I thought it was great. So uh, unlike you, I'm uh, I'm not Apple-centric. I'm, I'm retro-centric, but I lean heavily towards the, the Apple side of, of that equation. And that's mostly what I've I've kind of accrued at, at home over the last couple of years. But I, I find all of computing history fascinating. You know, the, the Computer History Museum, I think, is one of the best places to, to go visit. And I felt that the, the exhibits there and the attendees and, and the speeches that were given, if you're into computer history and you find that interesting, it, it's well worth the time to go visit something like that. There's some fascinating stuff there. And, and I got to play Adventure on the... On the, I think it was a PDP that they had there. I actually got to play one of these early, these early uh, uh, games on one of the platforms that it was actually uh, available for uh, way back then. So it's 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 good time if you can go. Yeah, they mentioned the keynote speaker for VCF Southeast, although I don't think they're calling it that. All I remember is that they mentioned it on an episode of RCR, and then I emailed them to ask what was the name of that guy again, and they said, "Oh, we can't tell you. It's not f- official yet." So, hmm. Uh, but it's the artist for Byte magazine, isn't it? Anybody remember? No. Yes, I believe that's what David said, the artist. I hope it's okay for us to mention it now. Uh, if not, I'm sure we'll be getting a cease and desist order shortly. <laughs> Another VCF has not had such good luck, though. VCF East, normally held in May, is being postponed this year because the InfoAge Museum that I mentioned it being held at has been damaged by Hurricane Sandy. Repairs are still underway. I understand the actual artifacts and exhibits at the museum are fine. There's just some structural damage. But they're going to postpone VCF East 9.0 from 2013 to 2014, at which time they may call it VCF East 9.1. However, people looking for an event in the meantime have a couple to look forward to this summer. Kansas Fest will be opening registration soon. Hopefully that means the month of March, although no guarantees. And there will be another event in Australia, which has the unfortunate and I hope temporary name of Brizfest, which will mean something very different to our Jewish listeners. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we don't really need a festival for that. But this is being held in Brisbane, Australia, July 27th to the 28th. I believe Andrew Rowan is organizing it, but I will have more details in the show notes as far as uh, who to contact if you have interest. It is just a two-day event. I believe that's the same time as Kansas Fest, which is being held July 23rd to the 28th. So you will be able to attend one or the other, and I hope have a video chat between the two, as we tried a couple of years ago when there was a Mount Kira Fest in Australia. So again, Kansas Fest, July 23rd to the 28th, keynote speaker Randy Wigington. There is an official trailer and logo for the event on the kansasfest.org website. And BrizFest coming out in July in Brisbane, Australia. Anybody attending either one? I was trying to find out if I if it was even possible for me to go to Kansas Fest this year. Uh, every year, ever since I've heard of Kansas Fest, I've always had a work conflict. Uh, I know last year and the previous year I was speaking at conferences and at the exact same week that Kansas Fest. So I was I was checking to see what our internal conference schedule was to see if it had a conflict with um, Kansas Fest. And, and, and the answer is no. So there's a there's a uh, possibility that I might make it to Kansas Fest for the first time this year. That'd be fantastic. You wouldn't be our only Utah attendee, so you might be able to get to meet some of your very own neighbors all the way in Kansas City. Oh, that'd be interesting, yeah. 
Well, another, speaking of Australia, our friend Terry Stewart, I believe that's where he's from, he is an Apple II user who posted on Google Plus his YouTube tour of his Apple IIe. He starts off in front of the camera introducing his machine and then takes it, users on a tour of the insides and outsides of the hardware. I thought it was a nice addition to the archive of YouTube material about the Apple II. And uh, we've seen similar videos from Brian Peachy and I think from Matt's Macintosh. And there's always room for more. So thanks for adding to that, Terry Stewart. Over on, I saw this on Macworld.com, but I think I saw it because you actually posted about this, Ken. And I saw it because Mark Munns posted it to Facebook. Ah. Ben Jedwards has put up a, it's actually a Flickr gallery, I think, and they, they link to it from the article. Uh, and he, he calls this Abandoned Apples. And it's, it's a fascinating little gallery. It's only 12 pictures or so of machines that have literally been abandoned, whether they've been left behind in schools that, that are no longer used or businesses. Uh, and they've just been left there to rot. Rotten apples. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Um, and obviously time has not been very kind to many of these machines. And it's not just Apple IIs. They've got, you know, there's a, looks like a Mac Color Classic and some iMacs and other things like that. But, uh, it, it's just, to me, it's very interesting that if you're moving out of a place, I guess one way to get rid of your old computers is just to leave them there. You moved last year, Mike. Did you do that? Well, my, yes, my, my old house was filled with, with computers that I just left for the next person to clean out. No, uh, I, I wouldn't do that. Um, I, I'm uh, obviously uh, the Apple twos and apples in general held a, hold a lot of sentimental value to me. And I tend to be a pack rat anyway. I try to hold on to everything. So I wouldn't do something like this, but I, I guess if you didn't have the resources and you didn't, or you didn't have the space in your new location to deal with this stuff. Maybe the thing to do is just to leave them and hope somebody rescued them or cleaned them up. In this case, these were not cleaned up. There's, there's a, a picture of what looks like maybe a schoolroom or something like that that's filled with old, the, the old original IMAX and all of their, their screens have been smashed in by vandals and uh, things like that. That's an abandoned fire station filled with IMAX. Apparently this fire station had a lot of IMAX. Um, and some of these, I, I wish that I was there. I mean, I don't know if it would be stealing to, to take them if they've been abandoned in a, in a place like that, but there's, there's stacks of, you know, the, the old, slightly older iMac, uh, notebooks, for example, just sitting there. That's one interesting thing about this gallery is that the photographers who took these shots were trespassing wherever it is that they were, whether or not these houses are abandoned. There, they didn't have permission to be there. They did not take anything except photographs. So all the machines that you see in those photos were left there as the photographer abandoned them himself. I don't know if he had an obligation to leave them there so as not to be a thief, or if he had an obligation to save them and unabandon them and restore them. But it's possible that maybe people have identified where these photos were taken. Their exact addresses are not mentioned in the gallery. But if but if you can determine where they were, they're still there for the taking. Well, yeah, some of them are obvious. I mean, it's there's no address, but this picture of a it's a kind of an interesting picture in itself. It's of a, a platinum two E that's all smashed up next to a perfectly preserved uh, image writer printer. Nobody touched that. Uh, but that's you know, for example at Horace Mann High School in Gary, Indiana. I doubt it. It'll take. I doubt that that's going to take a lot of effort to find that. Oh, they actually did say in the caption exactly where it was? Yeah. 
Oh, I missed that. Interesting. Yep. So chances are those photographs are truly historical because the things that they represent are no longer there. Probably not. I, I imagine that that color classic. Well, no, the color classic. I don't think it says where they took that. So some of these, some of these, it exactly identifies their location. You know, there's a Tui, uh, an old Tui sitting in uh, Arn's Royal Hawaiian Motel in Baker, California, for example. Um, but others, they don't say. It's just um, at a house in the countryside in New Zealand. Now, Egan, on your Apple II or retro computing blogs, do you have any photographs of your own hardware? Videos. I've done. I've done videos. Uh, I sent you. Uh, I sent you some links to some of the videos that I did, and I think I've made some videos, demos um, of some of my projects. But I don't think I've taken any photos and and posted them. What equipment do you use to shoot video? Uh, <laughs> Uh, my iPhone, and um, I've got a small point-shoot camera that if I have to stick something on a tripod, I'll use that too. But most of the video I've done has been video capture. So I use a USB video capture device and uh, and or a VGA video capture device, and then I, I try to capture that and voice over it and then, and then put it together. One of my videos show you how to load Apple II software off of a CD drive assuming you stored the sorted as, a, as an audio cd track and so in that in that video you you get to see my my apple IIe in the background nice sounds like a simple and effective setup yes well fortunately we were able to stop some other apple equipment from being abandoned mr don worth of beneath apple manor previously profiled in juice gs by our own mr mike mcginnis Posted on Facebook that he's scanning a bunch of his material and then throwing away the originals. And I pleaded with him to, I let him know that there would be a eager audience for the originals if he would just let them go. He's been posting prolifically to Facebook's Apple II enthusiast group with photographs of what he's trying to get rid of and giving them away to first come, first serve. So I'm glad that he is finding homes for this stuff. We won't be posting links to each item he has posted on Facebook because there are so many of them. But if you are on Facebook, consider joining the Apple II Enthusiast group. There is a equivalent group on Google Plus that is not quite as uh, noisy just yet. But it's good to see what these other folks are posting. And who knows, you might get something free out of it. Mike, you interviewed Don, as I mentioned. Have you had any interaction with him since that time? I did. He actually sent me... Okay, so Don, in addition to Beneath Apple Manor wrote the books Beneath Apple DOS and Beneath Apple ProDOS, uh, very popular books at the time, kind of landmark for, for how clearly they laid out the internals of the operating systems. Um, and in fact, Don had hand disassembled DOS and ProDOS and uh, Apple, when they found out about it, called him up and, and asked him not to publish the source code. So he, he held on to his copies of the code and he forwarded me one of his copies of the disassembly of uh, DOS 3.2. Oh, wow. That's very cool. Yeah. And I'm sort of, I, I want to scan it and post it, but I'm sort of, I, I know that Apple has, obviously it's still under copyright by Apple now. Apple has kind of left us alone as far as posting Apple II material, um, scanning and posting that stuff, but I, I don't know how they would feel about this. So I kind of go back and forth about whether I should scan and post it because of its historical significance or whether it might attract the wrong kind of attention. I'm not sure. So in my opinion, Don's comments 
That's that's his intellectual capital, not Apple's. It is. So you could publish the you that could I publish could, the that I could publish, but the code itself is Apple's. Uh, yeah. So so you you publish Don's comments with some information of how they align, and then anybody can take and disassemble the DOS, merge it with his comments. <laughs> well, that's that's an interesting idea. I hadn't thought of that. It would be a way to preserve the original commentary without violating any copyright. I say do it. Okay, I'm on it. Especially now that you're bringing Apple II scans back alive. You should do everything you can to get Apple's attention. <laughs> I'll just go camp out on the, on their front porch, and while I'm there, I'll, I'll demand a visitor center. Excellent. <laughs> you know, as long as we have one impossible request, what's one more? Right. Cool. Uh, another scan news. I spent some time talking to Margot Comstock over on on the uh, Soft Talk Forever Facebook group about scanning the old Soft Talk magazines. This was motivated. This has been people have been wanting scans of this for a long time now, and you know, a couple of issues have popped up here and there of a variant quality. A couple of weeks ago, someone local to me posted on Craigslist that they had twenty five. Uh, soft talk back issues that they wanted to get rid of it and just come by, pick them up and you can have them. So I did. And that sort of brought my collection of soft talks from 10 to well, uh, to up over 30 and, and provided the impetus that I needed to actually get started on this. And I sent Margo a sample of, of one of a 50 page sample of one of the issues and she seemed to really like it. And she said she was okay with it. Now we're not really sure who owns the copyright anymore. I don't, I don't think. Margo knows, but she was, she and Al Tomervik, uh, were actually married at one point and they were kind of the creative forces behind Soft Talk. So I figure at this point, if I've got their approval, it's probably okay. So I, I've started scanning, uh, those issues and, and the later issues especially, uh, are a bit of a problem because they tend to be over 400 pages. Um, so they take a long time to scan and they're all in color. So if you want, if you really want a good scan, you got to do it in color, which means, even at low quality, they're going to be 500 megabytes or larger per issue. So I, I'm sort of wrestling with what to do with that. But these are coming. Um, and I, I think that Softalk is one of those Apple, I, I guess, icons, if you want to call it, from the 80s that's that we've been missing so far. So Excellent. You're making some good progress on that. Yeah, I think so. And, and of course, if anybody's out there has them and wants to, to help out, I'm, I'm more than happy to... to to either contribute to your project or have you contribute to mine, whichever. Uh, I just think it's important to get these things up there for people to have. Margo's only uh, stipulation was that they be given away for free, so I don't think that'll be a problem. And a few months ago, you and I, did we mention on the show? I don't know. I don't remember if we did or not. We talked about possibly getting permission to scan A Plus and Insider from your, from your then-employer IDG yeah, we didn't talk about that, and I don't want to spend too much time on it because it's sort of a, a non-event. It's the return of the status quo, and it's we don't like to bring people down with bad news. But I was working for the company that published Insider A Plus years ago, and I was working alongside their former editor-in-chief, Dan Muse. He and I discussed possibly getting the rights to scan those magazines and put them online legally. But unfortunately, due to the way contracts were written decades ago, uh, from a legal and safety sort of cover your butt perspective they were unable to determine if they have the right to have those pdfs posted online they were unable to say that we can do that hmm. i mean they understand the value in doing so but it's just you you never know what liability you might be opening yourself up to and they have sure. to think of that 
Sure. There, there's there's no financial reason for them to say yes. Yeah, and that's disappointing but unsurprising. Right. But we tried. We did. Moving right along. Egan, do you have any favorite Apple II magazines? I mean, obviously, besides Juice GS. <laughs> uh, no, not really. I, uh, you know, back in the 80s, I, I would pick up the occasional magazine based on what was on the uh, contents, you know, on the cover. So I didn't really lean one way or the other. And uh, you know, my, my, my friends got a lot of those magazines, and so I could look through them as well. But there wasn't really a particular one that that stood out. Are there any archives that you patronize? Are there old magazines that you're just now discovering and saying, hey, this was really cool 30 years ago? Uh, yeah, actually, uh, and, I, and I apologize, I can't remember the names off the top of my head, but I, I follow Jason Scott on Twitter, and every now and then he'll say, I just put all these, these magazines out there, and so yeah, I'll, I'll thumb through them. And, and, and I'm going to be doing this more aggressively uh, with, with, with this article that I'm working on with uh, the, the relative processor performance uh, of various machines over time, of, of home machines over time, uh, I, I want to understand what the cost of those machines were as well. And so I, I need to start digging through some of these magazines to get a better understanding of what these different platforms cost in certain points of time. Excellent. Yeah, it's, it's good to have a resource like that available you, because there's you can't rely on people's memories to say how much something cost back then. But if you can find the original advertisement, for example... You know, it doesn't get more accurate than that. Yeah, and I've been reading some of the older programming articles. There, there's some great resources out there on assembly language programming. The, God, the name escapes me right now. It's It was the Apple uh, assembly lines. Are you familiar with that one? No, I'm not. Are you, Mike? Was that Bob Cedarloff's magazine? I think so, yeah. yeah. So all, all, of the, all of those have been not, not scanned, but... Um, I would say OCR retyped, but they're all available online, and it has all the assembly language programming trip tricks for the Apple II, and that's that's been a, a good resource for learning Apple II assembly language programming. So that's one magazine that comes to mind is Assembly Lines. Yeah, Bob Sander Cedarloff, and in fact, uh, he he's the one that published it, and he's also the one that that put those back up online. So. No question about the legality of that. Yeah, and, and I hope that others will do the same. There, there's there's a lot of fantastic history in there. Every now and then, someone will find an article that you know Steve Wozniak or someone else did, and uh, so when those come up, if I have the time, I'll, I'll go click on them and and read them. I'm finding that more and more of these links are leading to Google Books. So so Google's been archiving some of these magazines as well, and I I just clicked on a link the other day from a Google search, and it actually took me. Oh, actually, it was from uh, this morning. I, I was looking at some of the eBay stuff that you asked me to and or, or to come up with suggestions, and I, I stumbled across something that mentioned something of a product I'd never heard of before, so I Googled that, and it took me to – I don't even remember the name of the magazine. I just know it took me to the, the Google Books, and I could find the find – the, they, had, they had a small article on 8088 coprocessors that were available for the – for the Apple II. So I, I hope that this continues to happen and we get all that history preserved. Well, and Jason Scott's been posting buckets by the terabyte up to to the uh, Internet Archive as well of, of documentation. So there's quite a bit of history preserved there, too. Yeah, and this actually reminds me of a recent discovery from Brian Weiser. He emailed me with a scan of a magazine he found called Begin Computing, 
supposedly published by Insider in 1988. Anybody ever heard of it? No, it's new to me. Well, I emailed Dan Muse, and he was listed as the publisher of the magazine. Uh, the editor-in-chief of this magazine was supposedly Deborah DePaster. And Dan wrote back to say, Begin Computing was an annual that we did twice, and I think we only did it twice. It was a newsstand-only issue aimed at new buyers, and he had forgotten that he was listed as associate publisher. He says, I can't for the life of me remember why I was listed. <laughs> so it looks like there were only two issues, and it was uh, 25 bucks each. No, I'm sorry. According to the email I got from Brian Weiser says, it's a 96-page magazine with a small print that says published monthly for $25 a year. But then Dan Muse says it's an annual. So I'm thinking perhaps that monthly thing that Brian Weiser was referring to was probably the actual insider magazine that was publishing this annual. That would make sense, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so Brian has that in his collection, and he has determined uh, through Dan Muse exactly what it was. So a little bit more uh, information about the history of Apple II publications, one more mystery solved. Yep. Another thing that has been unearthed is every file you've ever deleted. Ewan Wenup has released a <laughs> undeletion utility called Phoenix, as in from the ashes. This is a application for GSOS, and it undeletes or exhumes your Apple II deleted files. It handles data forks and resource forks, which most 8-bit undeleters won't. And it can undelete the file right where it was on the same volume, or it can copy it or exhume it to another volume if the original volume has become tainted. This is a nice complement to his previous release of ByteBagger, which is a block editor NDA. So between the two, you can uh, manipulate your files in a variety of manners. So thank you, Ewan. It's nice to see him branching out from telecommunications. He's always had the ability to write in a variety of genres, and he always has. But we always tend to think of him as the guy who wrote Spectrum. And this is a reminder that he is a tour de force powerhouse of Apple II GS programming. Yeah, he's been cranking out quality software for a number of years now. Mm-hmm. As well as scans. I think he's the host of the Shareware Solutions 2 archive. Is that him or Tony? Okay, I'm looking at you in sight, and it does say these PDFs were prepared from the original AppleWorks GS files by Tony Diaz and is hosted. Uh, I think you can find them at the Lost Classics website that Tony hosts but they are also available for download from Ewan's site where he has, I think, an exclusive index of the actual contents on right on the HTML webpage that has the file links. Well, there you have it. Ewan obviously has been putting out great software for a long time, and so has the French programming supergroup Brutal Deluxe. Um, but in addition to new software, Antoine Vignal has been busy at work archiving Apple II cassettes and he, he posted today on Comp Sys Apple II that he's added a few more tapes, and he's at nearly 600 tape images. That's a uh, lot. That's a lot. In fact, I didn't. it didn't even occur to me that there would be that many tapes released between <laughs> 77 and about, what, 80, 81 or so, when tapes kind of fell out of favor to the floppy disk. Um, but And they're all available for download uh, at Brutal Deluxe's website. And it's interesting that uh, he had posted... Uh, a week or so ago on Compsys Apple II Marketplace, a bunch of hardware that he was selling, and somebody was asking why he was getting rid of it, if he, if he was getting out, and he's he's liquidating some of his older Apple II hardware so that he can buy more cassettes to image. 
So he is really dedicated to this project. And that's kind of cool to see because it's easy to image floppies with ADD Pro and, and some of the other technology that's out there today. Um, but I don't know that there's there are any other real preservation efforts going on for Apple II tapes. Do either of you actually use tapes? My Apple II Plus came with a five and a quarter inch drive. So I only had to deal with tapes in the cassette interface uh, every now and then when, when I was at school, our older Apple IIs still had them. But uh, other than that, no. Clearly, based on the discussion that we had earlier, uh, I don't use tapes, but I use the tape interface quite a bit. And all the development, most of the development work that I've done for the Apple II has been making that tape interface operate at, at higher speeds. I have used some of the tapes from that archive. Uh, most recently, there was posted a very rare 8080 emulator for the Apple II. And I wanted to get my hands on that and see how well it performed versus a real 8080. So it sounds like yet another archive that has modern day utility. Yep. Awesome. Yeah. Well, speaking, well, speaking of audio, it sounds like we have a new contender on the block to keep an ear out for. Mike? Yes, there's a new Floppy Days vintage computing podcast. And I first read about this when I was lurking over at the Atari Age forums. Um, I guess the guys at RCR have talked about this as well. Uh, when I first saw it, of course, in my head, I saw Happy Days. Um, and indeed, <laughs> well, and indeed, that's what he's playing on because the opening theme song to the podcast is the Happy Days theme. Oh, God. Yeah. I, um, I think this podcast has already jumped the shark. <laughs> well, his first episode uh, was just, it's just him talking, and he talked about his collection and his background and what he plans to talk about in upcoming podcast. It reminded me a lot of Earl Evans's Retro Bits. Now that Earl's not really doing retro bits any, anymore, maybe this will fill that niche nicely. It, it's well, it's it's his first podcast, so uh, I expect it'll improve over time. When you say he and him, who is this? Because I, I'm on the website, which is just a, another Libsyn site, yeah, and I don't even see an iTunes download link or subscription link, rather. Anonymous podcaster, uh, like the guy from the Retro List. Oh, it's Randy Kindig. He starts back in the, the mainframe days. I guess he, his area of study is actually nuclear physics, and, and he got in, involved in computing through their use of mainframes at various nuclear labs. Um, but uh, it, it, it sounds like, a, sounds like a, a good start, a promising start to an interesting podcast. Excellent. I will have to uh, download that immediately. It looks like the first episode came out in February. There hasn't been a Second episode yet. It's been less than a month. I presume he's going to follow some sort of a monthly schedule. Uh, that's what he had mentioned. And he said he's going to try to stick to 35, uh, 30 to 45 minutes. So he's already got us beat by a long shot. <laughs> well, we, that's where we started. Oh, that's right. We did, didn't we? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Egan, what podcast do you listen to in the retro computing realm? So ob obviously, uh, obviously you guys, right? Um, no quarter, RCR. I would I would say those are more or less the regular ones. Uh, I do listen to the Retroist. I just kind of pick and choose. Uh, I just heard about the uh, the Flack podcast. I'm not sure where. Uh, that's kind of another you know when I have time I'll I'll pick something out. Um, that Retro Matcast, of course. And I, I did I did listen to this. I think I listened to to Floppy Days. I, I see it on my list here, but I'm always very far behind because of the. Uh, it's just a. Uh, it can become time time consuming, so I, I'm often trying to get trying to get caught up. Usually, like over the holidays or over the summers and and during travel and things like that. But 
but the principal ones are this one, no quarter, RCR, and retro matcast. Yeah, I, with my new job, my commute has changed, and that used to be when I would listen to podcasts. I find I have a lot less time to listen to podcasts now, so I've had to trim down exactly what I listen to. I appreciate anybody who keeps Open Apple in their playlist. I just did a quick calculation, and the past 24 numbered episodes of this show equal 36 hours of content. Yeah, see, I don't have a commute, so that's part of my challenge. Uh, my office is, you know, down the hall from my bedroom, so I, I just wake up and go to work, <laughs> and then uh, then I work all day, and then I go to bed, and I don't really have that unless my wife sends me out for errands, which pretty much is when I get to listen to podcasts. That's that's my only time, and even traveling, I travel a lot. About fifty percent of my time is is on the road traveling, but I tend to you know get out the laptop, do work, things like that. Uh, on the airplane because it's uh, it's an isolated environment where I'm not being disturbed, so it's it's a great work environment. So yeah, it it makes there, there's some challenges with trying to keep current with so many podcasts, and it seems like the there's either I'm discovering new retro ones or new re, new retro ones are um, occurring. But it, it seems like to me there's just more to listen to, and that that makes it to be makes a challenge as well. It almost seems to ebb and flow to a degree that balances out because. It's almost as if we've lost retro bits, one megahertz, and A2 unplugged, and yet now we get all these new shows like RCR, Open Apple, and Floppy Days. So there's always something to listen to. Now, now have you tried listening to them at, at 2x speed? RCR? <laughs> and any of them. You can, the, I, the, at least on an iPhone you, or iPod, you can tell it, you can press the 2x button and they'll talk twice as fast. I actually did listen to the, some of those shows. On my iPad at twice speed. Some shows I was able to do it better than others. I wish there was a one and a half speed. That's actually the speed at which I edit open Apple. So I'm used to hearing podcasts at that speed. And I would have no problem consuming content that way. But twice was just a little bit too fast. One thing I, I would say about these podcasts is that um, if I have to pick and choose, I tend to lean towards the ones that have the show notes and the links. And I, I find that very helpful. That's one of my favorite things about this podcast is that the volume of links and show notes, they're, they're so well done. And it makes it very easy to, you don't have to take notes or pause or say, oh, I want to get more information on that and have to do Google searches and stuff. And especially if you're driving or if you're on the road, it's, it's good to know that I can, that every, every single topic will have some sort of link in the show notes. I can with certainty say that open Apple is not the cause of any known vehicular accidents. <laughs> Why did you ask about the double speed listening? Have you tried that as well? Yeah, just, you know, to try to, to try to optimize time, right. To see if I could get through more content quicker. Uh, unfortunately it takes away from the, it takes away from the enjoyment of the experience, but you know, if I if I'm trying to get caught up on something, then then yeah, I'll listen to them at two x, and and I'll listen to other podcasts as well. And uh, there, there's there's news podcasts, there's a you know great podcast that I like on statistics that I listen to, and um, so I, I tend to uh, increase the the speed on those. There's a, the Science Friday from NPR, which is fantastic, and uh, that's like two hours, and so it's it's kind of helps to compress um, compress some of those. I found that usually if I was getting to the point where I had to listen to the show at twice speed just to get through it, then that became my goal. Not listening to the show, but getting through the show. And at that point, I just realized maybe I should unsubscribe. 
I, I, yeah, I, that's, you have a good point there. Uh, I've also been reading this book called The Information Diet, and it made me realize that I'm consuming a lot of content for no other reason than that because it's placed in front of me and that I have the opportunity to be more selective in what I take in. So I'm trying to whittle down you know, my RSS feeds, my email lists, my podcasts, my YouTube channels, stuff that I used to consume just because it was there. Uh, I'm in the exact same situation. I used to wake up early in the morning so that I could read you know, hour, hour and a half of tech news, but I've, I've just, you know, I'm so busy at work and, and I, I sit there and look, uh, you know, what did I get out of this hour and a half that I read? It's, it's too broad. So I'm, I'm just trying to focus my area of interest into those things I'm particularly focused in and, and reduce the amount of information. Because if I need that information, I can always search and find it. I don't always need it, uh, need it pushed to me, but uh, yeah. And I, I blame the iPad for part of that because it makes it so easy to consume content. So I, I'm, I'm in this. I need to read that book. Uh, but the, yeah, there's got to be better ways to manage uh, manage all this content. Well, there will be a link in the show notes. Excellent. One last news item before we sign off the news section, and that is Mr. Steve Wozniak will be the commencement speaker at the University of California, Berkeley, on May 18th, 2013. Uh, we have had him as a guest speaker at Kansas Fest in 2003, so 10 years ago this year. I suspect he's probably going to be telling some of the same stories. That seems to be his nature, that he relies on pulling out the $1 bills and talking about that, or the business card made of metal that he can you know, shave himself with or whatever. I would be eager to be in the audience of this show, but at the same time, I suspect that it won't have the staying power of Steve Jobs' Stanford commencement speech, which was popular even before he passed away. It had millions of hits on YouTube. His speech about, you know, stay hungry, stay foolish. That's where that phrase came from. I don't know that Steve Wozniak will have such pithy phrases to share with these budding graduates. Anybody else want to offer their own commentary on Wozniak as a speaker? I think that Jobs was better at sort of the big bombastic speeches and and uh, hyperbole and things like that, where I think Woz is a better storyteller he he was better at telling stories about his youth and, and what it was like in the early days of Apple. Um, so I don't know that that will lend itself all that well to a commencement speech, but we'll see. It's almost enough to make you want to go back to college. Not quite. What's it worth to you? Hold on to your wallet as we look at the latest Apple pickings. Starting off the eBay section this month, we have a book that took Mr. Egan Ford, our guest this month, quite by surprise. Yeah, I, I uh, you, you guys asked me to, you know, find, you know, see if there's anything interesting on eBay, and I, I don't normally go trawling through eBay. I put a few uh, searches in there, right, and it, it emails you if, if it finds things. But I just went through looking for Apple II, and I saw this book on Apple II processor cards. Now I. You know, because of the, the the research that I'm doing and all these different processors and their, their history, uh, I like the idea of being able to get these processor cards and stick them in my machine to do to 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 do benchmarks, and um, and I've always been interested in emulators as well. So this kind of aligns with that. So there's this book called Apple II Processor Cards, and I found it I found that very interesting. Someone, someone would develop that. Finding some information on some of these processor cards are are difficult. But what what cracked me up was the uh, when you read the description. It's an actual cut and paste from the Apple II processor cards 
Wikipedia page. And then if you look at the front of the book, it says high quality content by Wikipedia. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Since there is a Creative Commons license on Wikipedia content, that means that anybody can and does reprint this stuff and sell it on eBay or Amazon. There are even YouTube channels dedicated to converting Wikipedia pages from text-to-speech. Uh, yeah, and, and, and Wikipedia's had some, you know, some digs at it because of the, the origins of the content or some, the circular references and, and, and things like that. So I just kind of found it funny that it said this high-quality content by Wikipedia. And, and it's not a dig at Wikipedia from, from me. I, I think it's a fantastic resource. And if I was a, a billionaire, I'd send them lots of money, if, if anything, just so that I don't have to see uh, Jimmy Wales' head pop up during the <laughs> begathon periods. But uh, Yeah, I mean, like you said, this is not a slam against Wikipedia because they're not the ones, you know, yeah. commercializing this content. It's people who are taking advantage of them that are doing this. And, and it's, it's discounted. It's, it's $84 knocked down to, to 65 Oh, well, I'm that is the deal then. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing that always shocks me about this stuff. Isn't It's not that they're doing it. They're selling that distilled information from Wikipedia. It's the prices on some of these these documents are you know, hundreds of dollars. It's like, really? I, you're not giving me any information that I can't find somewhere else. Is your time really worth that much? And I guess they think it is. Well, I guess you could say the same thing about Steve Weirich's Apple II history book that's coming out soon. That website's been available for decades. Why buy a book? But that's because he's doing a lot of work into making this like the special edition. This is not just a copy and paste. Well, yeah, it's it's going to to be reformatted and laid out nicely and with new high-res pictures, and he's going to be adding content. And he's also an active member of the community, so I feel okay supporting him by buying a book of the information that's already on his website. Right. This is not him cashing in. Right. Well, it is, but we still like him. <laughs> so it's okay. <laughs> so exactly. if, I, if I like you. <laughs> and he's not charging $90 for his book either. And he didn't make us pre-order it on Kickstarter, but only because he found an actual publisher, which is hard to do. Uh, if he had gone on Kickstarter, I would have given him my money. Well, it's interesting. I, I was talking to him about his book, and the publisher is actually Brian Bagnell, the guy who is, has has been putting out the Commodore books. Um, so, the, so the guy that, that's doing this is already has, has experience publishing books about retro computers. Well, that's how Steve found him. He started looking for other retro computing books, found that publisher, and said, oh, maybe you'd like to publish my book, too. And that's the best way to do it. I, I would recommend to anybody publishing a book on any subject, look for publishers who publish that kind of book. You're not going to take your murder mystery to a sci-fi shop. At Computer World, we would get press releases from companies saying, will you please consider reviewing our iOS game? And I write back to them and say, do you even know what our website's about? <laughs> we focus on enterprise IT. We review firewalls and blade servers. We're not going to review your Angry Birds clone. <laughs> Why are you wasting everybody's time, including your own? You have to target your research. So that's what Steve did, and that's how he found the Commodore books. It is possible, Ken, that they did do their research and was targeting targeting your their iOS app for enterprise IT because of the number of people that waste time playing those games in the enterprise. <laughs> I'm not saying there's a there isn't an overlap in the audiences, but there's not an overlap in our coverage. It, it was a joke, Ken. <laughs> Well, don't I feel like a data jerk? <laughs> Fine, you got me that time, Egan. I'll remember this. Anyway, so I found some interesting stuff on eBay. One is an Apple IIe original packaging with accessories rare. Everything on eBay is rare. 
So this is an Apple IIe lot. It is not new in box, but he claims to have the boxes. And I can see them in the photos. They're very yellowed and stained and taped up and torn. But they're original. Includes monitor, keyboard, duo disc, system saver, printer, mouse, joystick, gaming, paddles, etc., etc. And the buy it now price is a very reasonable $3,000. Oh, well, the important thing is the serial number matching because Apple, at the time when they shipped Apple twos and two E's and all that, they would, the, the serial number of the machine that was in the box was also on the outside of the box. And so if they match, well, even then it wouldn't be worth three grand, but it doesn't, he doesn't show the serial number of the machine or the box there. So, I mean, if you're a, the type of collector who wants matching boxes and documents and things like that, even, uh, even if you were willing to pay three grand, I don't know that you would want this one because there's no verification. And also, the Apple IIe itself isn't rare. No, it's not. It's not even the the original brown keys with the white lettering. It's a rosin case. Those those original ones tend to be a little more rare. So that, that's what I got. I got I got the original painted. I've got the white letters on the keys. I got that for fifty bucks in the local paper. Nice. Yeah, I suspect locals are less likely to know what it is they have on their hands. Or they do know, and they know that's not worth much. Yeah, he he, uh, he chuckled at me when I went to go pick it up. He, uh, he he said he would have sold it to me for 25 if I asked for it. He thought, he thought $50 was a reach. <laughs> I'm glad that both parties felt satisfied by the transaction. Oh, no, the guy was great. And then a year later, he emails me, and he says, oh, I found all this other stuff, like uh, printers and, and joysticks and all the accessories, and he asked me if I'd come pick them up. For ten bucks. Wait, who was giving who ten bucks? <laughs> <laughs> he said he'd sell. He said he'd sell to me for ten bucks. I said sure. So, good deal. Well, like we said, we probably don't have three thousand bucks to spend. But if you want to save a grand off that, you can get a rarer machine, a working Apple II, not Plus. At least that's how it describes itself on eBay. It says it's low serial number six six eight four, and it is the original nineteen seventy eight Apple II with. Apple III monitor, paddles, joystick, fan, software, manuals, and books. There's a sticker on the bottom, he says, that identifies the serial number. It comes with VisiCalc reference book and perhaps some other software. He says it boots up without issue, and he played checkers just before he put it on eBay. That said, sold as is. And the buy it now price on this is $1,850. Well, that tends to be tends to be more in line with the prices that these things go for. So an Apple II, not Plus, actually is worth this much? Or is it just what well, it tends to go for? I, I don't. It's not worth that much to me. It's worth whatever somebody will pay for it. And people have um, seem to have expressed their willingness to pay that much for original Apple IIs. Now, I can't... The, the picture of the motherboard um, is a little fuzzy and kind of dark. I can't... I don't think this is a Rev Zero, which, you know, means it's not going to... Wouldn't, shouldn't fetch as much. It probably will because people don't always know. But um, and the date code in the upper right actually looks like it's from eighty one nineteen. So this is definitely not a Rev Zero. This is a later in the run of Apple II. Were they even producing Apple IIs in eighty one, or is this a two plus that we're looking at? Yeah, he says it's not a two plus. Well, he says it's not. Right. If he's mistaken, it's probably not due to uh, maliciousness, more ignorance. You and I, we talked in a previous episode about identifying original Apple IIs and, and how you can tell the difference there. And, and so 
You just, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to buy one of these things, make sure you know what you're getting before you put down two or three thousand dollars and then find out you've got a, a two that's been upgraded to a two plus. I'm not the expert here, but when I, when I boot up a two emulator, when I turn it on, I think it goes straight to a machine code prompt and then you have to do a control B and hit enter to get the integer basic prompt. This is booting up and just says Apple. It's just booting up and saying Apple II. Oh, maybe that happens when you have a floppy drive in there. I don't know what it is. According to Wikipedia, the original Apple II was discontinued early in 1981. So this, I suppose, could be an, an original II at the very end of the run. Um, but I, I think it's. I still think it's going to go for a high price just because because it's he's selling it as an original Apple II. Buyer beware. So if you're looking to buy a, a boxed Apple IIe for a little bit less than $3,000, I did find one here just a few minutes ago as we were talking. Uh, this one is, it's just the CPU and the box that it came in. It doesn't include all the accessories and everything like that. Um, and again, you don't get the serial number view on the box, so I, but it this is being described as a, a 64K Apple IIe, uh, that was, that's never been taken out of the box. Uh, the box has been open for, to be photographed, but is still in there. Uh, hard to say whether it's, that's true or not. Currently there are two days and four hours left on this, this auction. Uh, it's at $201. And while it will sell before this publishes, uh, I imagine it'll go for considerably less than the $3,000 that the other auction was asking. Yeah, this is this is a box that's been open, so you know you're not buying a, bu a bunch of bricks that may destroy some of its collectability or some of its uh, resale value. But at least you know what you're getting, and it is brand new, never been used. Yep. He does he does it, it saying in bold caps, "No one has ever used yours and yours alone." So we have no way of knowing if it works. Apple products always work out of the box. There is no step three. Just lift it up and. Drop it six inches. <laughs> was it six inches? I thought it was more than that. I've never actually been able to find the, the piece of paperwork that describes that. I think that's almost more apocryphal than anything. And that, of course, being the uh, for the Apple III, right? The Apple III solution when they thought that, that the threes were failing because the chips were loose due to heat. It turned out not to be the case. but Well, if you are a buyer and you're looking for a better deal... There is a not a buy it now, but an actual auction on eBay for a vintage, not rare though, Apple IIGS ROM 3. It comes with a one and a quarter megs RAM, which is an unusual, and a three and a half inch floppy drive, a five and a quarter inch floppy drive. The pictures show it running and playing Dig Dug and what looks like Arkanoid. The current price after six bids is $131. It has $45 shipping from Michigan. And, uh, oh, plays Pac-Man too. And uh, overall, I, I think this is much more reasonable. I would spend 130 bucks for a complete Apple II GS that I knew worked. Yeah, that, that looks like a decent package. Includes the monitor, too. That's probably where most of the shipping weight comes from. Sure. Well, and, and working RGB Apple monitors that will work with the two GS are becoming more rare. So and it looks like it's in, in good condition and it's sharp. There's no obvious discolorations or cracks on the monitor or anything like that. So. Yeah, I don't see that there's a reserve price. He just started bidding at the usual 99 cents. So I don't think he's out there to make a bundle. He just wants to get rid of this at a reasonable price. 
That's that's ex this is exactly the system I have. I'm not the one selling it, but that's exactly what I got. Ex exact same specs and everything. Maybe he's selling your computer. <laughs> I should go in the basement and check. <laughs> I got I got lucky online. Someone posted to the uh, Compsys Apple II Marketplace, and someone was giving away an Apple II GS, and uh, and they lived in New York, and my daughter lives there because she goes to school there. So I emailed her and said, "Well, can my daughter come by and pick it up?" and uh, she asked for an address, and they both live on 14th Street in Manhattan. And she walked it over to my kid's dorm and dropped it off. And then on, on one of my uh, business trips to New York, I picked it up and took it home. It, it, it's in mint condition, and it has a, a, the custom-made plastic cover that goes over it to, to cover the whole, uh, uh, the whole unit. And so it hasn't been exposed to uh, – hasn't, hasn't discolored. That is quite the good deal you got. Oh, that was a fantastic deal. I wrote her a letter. I was very, very thankful. One of these days, I'll finish my blog article on it, and then I was going to send it to her and tell her this is this is what happened to your 2GS. But I have to finish. Uh, I've been collecting parts for it so that I can I can max it out with capability. Yeah, I got an Apple II from uh, Bruce Rosenblum a couple of years ago, that being the creator of Publish It, and I passed it on to Mike Willegal. And he wrote a nice blog post about it. I was able to send that blog to Bruce and say, here's what happened to your Apple II. And he was pleased to see that it wasn't just collecting dust somewhere. So I'm, I'm sure that your donor would appreciate seeing his Apple II in action as well. Yeah, and I get that question too, even when I get these uh, cheap systems out of the paper. I, I try to do local paper just because it's cheap. You don't have to pay for shipping. Uh, and, and I'm not going to go crazy and spend uh, I'm not a collector. I, I consider myself a user, but they always ask that. They're always very curious. What are you going to do with this? You know, and, <laughs> and I, I explain. I just I study them. I I like to write articles about them. Try to understand the the history of them, and, and they find it interesting. And sometimes I give them a URL to what I'm working on or my blog or or something like that. They they look at me with a mix of uh, confusion and maybe sympathy. You bring up a question that I've had. I recently started a new job, and they sent out a little mini profile of me, and they wrote, in his spare time, Ken likes to restore old Apple computers. And that's not exactly what I do. I mean, I have the same machine that I've had for 20 years and no others. But I'm trying to figure out what verb would I replace in, in place of the word restore to describe what it is I do. What, what is it that I do with old Apple II computers? You could, you could you could say you could say things like uh, you, you study them, uh, you preserve their history. Ken is an Apple II hobbyist. I mean, that's what I end up doing is basically rewriting the whole sentence. Since I'm the webmaster, I can do that. But yeah, it, it gave me pause. I had to sit and think about it for a few minutes before I decided to go that route. But use or play just sounds so vague and generic. But you, you could say you're a, you're a leader in the Apple II community. That sounds better. That requires that I have followers. Uh, well, people listen to your podcast. You got you got at least you know one follower. Cult of Ken. But they won't actually do anything <laughs> if I ask them to. Oh well. But any, anyway, uh, yeah, I think uh, preserve is actually a good word. I I, I wish I thought of that. Thank you, Egan. Preservationist. Pre yeah, yeah, yeah. Preservation of history is what what I would consider a lot of the activities that you do. Well, I'll, uh, next time I have to rewrite my biography, I'll think of that. Well, I know we had some uh, other auctions on ebay but i think this is also already a fairly comprehensive show shall we uh start wrapping it up well it sounds good to me uh egan thank you for taking the time to sit down and chat with us on a on a saturday sure yeah you know egan you talked about how our other guests have these contiguous histories with the apple II. 
I think that just makes it all the more impressive that you've been in this community for a relatively short time and yet have really made a name for yourself. I think most people have heard of you one way or the other, whether it's Retro Challenge or your blog or your Twitter or Apple Game Server, especially Apple Game Server. And I don't think it'll be any surprise to them that you're on this show. So I think you're the most surprised person here. That would be true. <laughs> well, well, I am glad that you have so quickly ascended through the ranks, and I hope you continue to do so and that you never get too big to be on our show. That never happened. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Any parting shots you wish to share? Any projects you're working on? Any announcements we can look forward to? No, I, I don't want to announce anything that I know I can't complete. <laughs> uh, my, my, and, and the only short-term project I have is my, my Apple III died, so I've got to figure out how to fix that. Yeah, I saw that email. That's a bummer. Yeah, so that 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 might motivate me to go to Kansas Fest so I can get someone there to fix it for me. It sounds like you have the motive, you have the opportunity. You need to get yourself to Kansas Fest. Yeah, I'll, I'll try this year. Excellent. Well, I will definitely see you there. And in the meantime, I look forward to seeing you online. Thanks for being on the show. Sure. Bye, Egan. Bye. This has been the Open Apple Podcast. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback by visiting us on the web at www.open-apple.net. Ken likes to blank old Apple computers. That could get pretty dirty.